Well, hello again, friends and leaders. Welcome back to What Leaders Want. I'm your host, Jay Delling, and it's here that we peel back the proverbial onion on how leadership makes the world go around. Today's podcast is sponsored by Canadis 3, the experts in leadership development, coaching, and consulting. Canadis 3 develops people into leaders of people. And today, my guest is a huge leader in healthcare. Say hi to Dr. Brian Pate, chairman of KU Wichita Pediatrics in Wichita, Kansas. Dr. Pate, thanks for stopping by to talk about the impact leadership has in healthcare and to talk about leadership in general. Welcome. Thank you, Jay. I couldn't I couldn't be more excited to, to be here to join you, and I'm humbled to be invited and looking forward to our conversation. Yeah, well, uh, Dr. Pate and I have a, a great passion for the Wichita community, um, for helping out uh, people that are, are less fortunate than, than ourselves. We're involved in the Wichita Open uh, Golf Tournament that is presented by KU Wichita Pediatrics and Dr. Brian Pate, and it's uh, um, uh, uh, an honor for us to to work together on that, to um, be able to bring such a great event to the community, and then at the end of the day, put about $300,000 in, in charitable dollars uh, back into the, the hands of our community. And, and that's something that, that you and I share, uh, Dr. Pate. So talk a little bit about, uh, about that focus. Well, we, we became partners with the Wichita Open, <clears throat> recognizing that they were one of the most influential and effective philanthropists for children's services uh, in the community. We actually started out as just sponsors. I mean, we're a small nonprofit, and I guess one of the ways that we try to express leadership in the community is attaching what little resources we have to use in that way to organizations that are really well aligned with our mission and doing things that are effective, maybe in a little bit of a different lane. And so we wanted to support the Wichita Open and all that they do. And um, we ended up being very great, we're just very grateful to be, end up being benefactors of the Open after we sort of learned uh, how aligned our missions were. And uh, so it's a great example of a synergy that was created just through that initial uh, uh, partnership. But uh, we couldn't be more grateful. It's a transformational partnership where we get to broadcast our message across uh, a large network that they cultivate. And in so doing, we get to express partnership and collaboration with um, the many children's charities that they that they emphasize and support. And then um, we're very grateful to get some support back from the Open to advance some of the things that we're doing for kids in Kansas. Well, let's go back a few years. Early in your career as a physician, uh, you were blessed to receive a request to become the department chair at Children's Mercy in Kansas City to help really build a new division of pediatricians dedicated to hospital care. So this idea of developing pediatric hospital medicine was relatively new in the United States, and and this opportunity became a, a domino effect of, of really innovation to bring collaboration to care for our young people. So leading through this innovation, I believe is truly a special skill. So talk about that time and how you helped orchestrate such a shift in how children were treated. I, you know, Jay, I could, couldn't be more grateful and appreciative of the opportunity that I was given. You know, I was just coming out of my residency and, um, 
there were so many factors in healthcare at the time that were making it more and more difficult for the proverbial general pediatrician to manage their offices and manage sick kids in the hospital. And this uh, role was developing in pediatrics. It it was a um, it was really already organized and moving in adult medicine for some different reasons, but it was very new in in pediatrics. And uh, the organization, the Children's Mercy, that I was that had trained me so successfully invited me to stay on after residency and build this new division. And I was I was humbled um, and excited by this challenge, and obviously accepted it. Uh, you know, so. I wasn't a, I wasn't a chair at that point for sure, but I became a division director at a at early point in my career. And I'll tell you what, um, boy, if I didn't learn, uh, I couldn't have learned more quickly how important it would be to understand uh, administrative and executive um, skills and how they're different from leadership skills and how important leadership skills are and. Uh, I, I think I think my peers and colleagues at Children's Mercy would attest that there was a lot of on-the-job training in both those skills. Um, but we ended up uh, with a really successful uh, division. It it became one of the at the time one of the largest uh, academic hospital medicine divisions of pediatricians in the country, and uh, just ended up having multifaceted success. Um, Honest, honest to goodness, Jane, you'll understand this mostly because of the quality of the people who who I got to work with and work for as the division director. It had less to do with what I was doing day to day and more to do with those excellent people. But, um, you know, the structure that brought those people together and the culture that we developed to allow those people to express their best selves uh, that led to those successes. And I'll definitely take a little bit of credit for being part of that. But um it was an amazing time and it allowed me to move into healthcare administration and healthcare leadership at an early stage in my career when it wasn't necessarily a goal of mine. Uh, and uh, But it did absolutely put me on a path that kind of at least wrote the framework for the next chapters of my career in healthcare. So Brian Pate, Dr. Brian Pate, he's the chairman of KU Wichita Pediatrics in, in Wichita. Um, there's a joke from years ago that I heard where a guy says, my mechanic says, oops, but my doctor can't. Talk about this idea that it's okay to make mistakes and what kind of feedback can we glean from this? Well, I love this question. So <clears throat> one of the things I think that that I hope the people that I get to serve in my role will will remember me saying is that it's important, especially in healthcare, for us to come to work every day expecting somebody to tell us that we could have done something better. I mean, when you take the aggregation of all the clinical decisions that we're making, all the social and emotional decisions that we make that wrap around those clinical decisions because we're always interacting with, with patients and families, and then you take the complex inner workings of the team that we work on and with and for. Um, and you kind of add all of those decisions up, be they big or small. Uh, and some of them can be very subtle with just the way we listen to or treat another person on our team. But when you add up all those different decisions that we're making every day, 
I think it's fair to say that there, I, I don't know of anybody who's coming to work and making every single one of those right every single day. So um, if, if you'll accept that premise, uh, then, then sort of the second step is we hope that we're in an environment where somebody around us cares enough to pull us aside and say, hey, you know, this thing you did yesterday or said yesterday, um, did you, could you see it from this perspective? And maybe it didn't feel like it was, it was um, as successful as you intended it to be. And if we don't have that environment, then we just sort of run around unaware of those opportunities. And, uh, you know, I, I try to, I, for myself, and it's easier said than done, and you know that, Jay, but for myself, I try to think about those feedback moments as sort of, remember the absolute value signs in math, like you put a number in there, it doesn't matter if it's positive or negative, it just is. So the feedback just, it put absolute value signs on it, right? Um, you're you're so giving feedback. me nightmares. You're giving me nightmares. I'm sorry. <laughs> I, I didn't enjoy math either, but you know, I distinctly remember that. I just think <laughs> what a cool magic trick is that? I, I put a couple lines on a number and it loses its value, you know, but, <laughs> but if we think about feedback that way, it's just data. And and the best thing about it is um, you're sort of doomed to make that mistake again until somebody points that out. And so it's we should be grateful that that pointing that out happened tomorrow and not two weeks from now. <clears throat> and um, and so that's how I think we try to approach this idea that we're imperfect. And so you can say, oops, and I'm sorry. Um, and. And you know how much that strengthens a team's capability of being better the next time. Well, and, and that's a good point. And I'm going to take us back to golf a little bit. And I'm going to take us to, to maybe football because to best illustrate this. We tend to learn more when we go back and look at our – when we fall short of the mark, right? So you and I, next June – could meet on the driving range at Crestview Country Club early in the week of the Wichita Open. And how many guys are we going to see out on the range with their track men, right? They're going to be recording their swing. They're going to make a swing. They know it wasn't a great swing, so they're going to look at it. They're going to try to figure out, okay, was my club face open at the top? Was Did I go over the line? Did I do this? Do, do I do that? So, so, so there's that component. Then there's the component. Think, be Andy Reid for a minute. I, I'm your assistant, one of your assistant coaches. What are we going to do Monday morning? We're going to review the tape of the game, right? right? We're going to we're going to see where we made, you know, some some errors, some mistakes, and we're going to go out and practice that. And so that's exactly what you're talking about. Is in in business, what I hear a lot of CEOs talk about, Dr. Pate, is I'm okay with my people making mistakes as long as it doesn't cost us a lot of money and it doesn't take us out of compliance, right? If we can if we can learn from those areas, then it's going to make us nothing but better, and that's what I'm hearing you talk about. Yeah, for sure. You know, we there's this really rich. And thankfully so, this really rich, robust, effective infrastructure that we have in healthcare that helps us to analyze and identify opportunities for improvement in medical decision making. And the medical decision making, which is 
which is sort of the apex of what we're trying to get right in healthcare, uh, is built on this foundation that is relational. It's about people and teams that deliver healthcare. What we're not very good at in healthcare, I believe, and and is um, having that same structured, intentional um, process of identifying opportunities for improvement in medical decision making, but applied to our environments, our relationships, our organizational infrastructure, um, and and that's one of the things where I think leadership shows up as such a priority in healthcare. Um, you know, the system, well, there's this great quote by, I think it was by uh, Deming. He said, you know, every system, I'm going to paraphrase it, but every system is constructed in a way to get the results that it gets. So if we don't, if we don't intentionally take a look at the mistakes we make every day in our relationships, and our attempts to lead, and our attempts to be administrators and and control and provide resources and structures, uh, then we're just doomed to repeat those mistakes moving forward. And so I think a, I think a real a culture that has real resiliency and is built on trust um, is a culture that's able to talk within itself about opportunities to improve. And you know, one other thing that came to mind hearing what you said about making mistakes. When, we're, when we think about creating the conditions as administrators, creating the conditions in our teams and in our structures where leadership can thrive, we have to allow those leaders to make mistakes. Um, and the guardrails that you mentioned are important, right? I mean, you can't you can't make mistakes all the way to a significant failure. But if we don't allow for the creativity, the innovation, the expression of influence and passion, that leaders in our systems can bring, um, you know, they're they're going to have great days and bad days. And if if we don't um, celebrate the great days and identify, permit, and improve on the bad days, then we really cut off that leadership opportunity in our in our organizations. I think. Love that. Love love that thought. Thanks for articulating that. All right, we're at what we call halftime. We're at the point in the podcast where we get to know Dr. Pate. I'm going to ask you a question or ask you to pick between two things. There are no <laughs> points awarded, no prizes earned. You get nothing and you like it. All right. Okay. Are you ready, yeah. doctor? All I'm right. ready. One word for a Kansas country sunset. Expansive. That's good. Your favorite do-it-yourself project around the ranch using a skid steer. Oh, I love it. Uh, Post-hole digging. All right. I know you're a fisherman, all right? Yeah. Fishing for trout or fishing for bass? Mm. Jay, that is a hard one. Hey. I didn't say this. I didn't say the show was going to be easy. <laughs> hey, if I had to pick one fish to catch exclusively for the rest of my uh, life and fishing career, uh, it would be a smallmouth bass. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think of on Golden Pond when Henry Fonda referred to this big fish as Walter. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if you remember that, but I right. do. Favorite stream 
for fly fishing? Oh, um, it is a uh, it is a private creek in uh, north central New Mexico mm. called Little Aspen Creek, and uh, I have made friends with uh, a nurse that I sometimes volunteer with at Philmont Scout Ranch, and she has this beautiful family with a multi generational ranch in New Mexico, and uh, it has one of the most beautiful little creeks in it and she lets me fish it sometimes and i'm internally grateful for it all right what's the biggest trout you've ever caught and where was it Um, so uh let's see caught i didn't land this fish so there's a there's a ruling to be made on that um but uh but i would do do we have to go to new york and have them view yeah (laughs) exactly there's a ruling to be made but um Anybody who does enough fly fishing knows that that you don't always land the the big the big fish to the net that you catch. But if you have it on longer than just a a few seconds, you're playing it. I think it counts. But um, so last summer I was on the Conejos, which is a river in uh, South Central Colorado, and uh, I hadn't caught a fish all day, and I just kept adjusting tactics and changing my fly, and uh, ultimately landed uh, hooked into the bit one of the biggest rainbows i've ever caught i i estimate it being probably 36 inches mm-hmm. having it close enough to me uh that i was playing it around my feet but i must have looked like i was uh an ineffectual gymnast of some sort <laughs> in the current in the wind uh one you know my fly rod up high the fish obviously doing whatever it wanted and me trying to net it with the other hand it didn't quite work out but that uh i'll never forget that fish it was a great one all right. Obviously, uh, you you like golf as well. So, would you rather have the satisfaction of hitting the green at the iconic par three seventeenth hole at TPC at Sawgrass, or hitting the famous par five thirteenth at Augusta National in two? Oh, you know what? I have to go. I have to go with Augusta. It is, and not just because of the iconic hole that you described and the and the golf shots that I wish were part of my golfing prowess, and neither <laughs> of those are. But um, but just because of the, you know, hey, that's that's Augusta, baby. Yeah, it I would is, definitely baby. rather do that. Yeah. All right, Jack Nicholas or Tiger Woods? Jack. There you I'm go. A, I'm a Tiger fan, but yeah. You know, I've got so many great memories watching Jack Nicholas with my dad. You know, my dad's no longer with me, and he was a big uh, eat a big bowl of pasta and watch golf on Sunday <laughs> on the couch. And I got to do that with him so often. And, you know, we, we watched Jack more than uh, we watched Tiger together. So, uh, and I'm kind of, I don't know, I think I'm a little bit of an old soul. I just think I'll, I'll say Jack. What's your dream foursome, dead or alive? Um, myself, my dad, my, uh, my grandfather on my mom's side and, uh, since I can only pick four, I'll just, I'll just say one of my sons in there. That's awesome. Yeah. You know, I never, um, we all played golf and I obviously got to golf some with my dad. Um, but, uh, it just never lined up where he was and I was, you know, in life. I was 
I was busy with medical school and residency when he was kind of enjoying his golfing years. And, and uh, so we just didn't get to play very often together. And my grandfather was the same way. So, um, yeah, that would be the foursome. I'd have a hard time picking uh, which son got to play with us, but uh, <laughs> but I picked well, those two. Maybe, maybe we play a Saturday and Sunday round then. Okay, fair enough. I like that. All right, so that's uh, Dr. Brian Pate uh, getting to know me. No points awarded, no prizes earned. All right, back to the ranch. So every conversation I have on what leaders want include the topic, my most impactful leadership moment or leadership period of time. Your most impactful leadership moment is actually a misnomer about what you you were initially taught about leadership. Share your thoughts about this. Yeah, th this has been, this was one of the most impactful moments for me as a leader. And honestly, it's become something that is almost sort of a central tenet of what I try to do in developing leaders in healthcare. And that is, um, not understanding until a really late stage in my own leadership journey in my career, the conflation between administration and leadership. In academic healthcare, I guess I can only speak from my experience, Jay, but I've I've talked with this to other um, you know, leaders and administrators in academic healthcare, and they've validated this, this observation that we're really taught to conflate administrators and leaders. And um and when you realize that executive administration and the skill set and acumen and the impacts that that has on an organization, how different it is than leadership, it unlocks so many important um, opportunities for growth and uh, so much great understanding about how organizations work great together. We we want our administrators to be great leaders. There's some really great. Um, there was a really great study and uh it was in the harvard business journal harvard business review that i read um where they they took um really effective executive administrators and they looked at those that had uh excellent leadership skills and those that didn't and what they found is that the constituency that that administrator is serving and those people who you want to turn into great leaders in your organization if that executive administrator who had control over such important resources like finances, structure, rules, and roles, wasn't also a great leader, then they were more likely to be resented for their the control they had in their organizations. If they if they also, if those executive administrators demonstrated strong leadership skills, emotional intelligence, the ability to leverage influence and not just the currency of delegation, for example, then those those executive administrators were looked up to as role models and they wanted to be emulated. So I don't want to break the two things apart completely. We want our executive administrators to have excellent leadership skills. But when we use that term interchangeably, we do a disservice um, because the skills are distinct and the impacts in the organization are distinct. The lack of effective administrative influence and, and the lack of, of leadership also produce different deficiencies in an organization. Um, so while we want them to be complementary skill sets, they are different. And um, an organization with unclear and or divided executive function uh, is chaos. 
an organization that doesn't have executive function that produces leadership in its constituency uh, suffers from apathy and a lack of creativity and momentum and motivation. So uh, when I when I learned this difference, and and granted, I had I had been had the privilege of being an executive administrator in healthcare, and people also told me you're a great leader, and we're going to call you a leader. Until I realized that those things were different, something as simple as knowing that I could independently learn leadership skills and executive administrative skills that weren't necessarily the same skills. Um, just imagine the world that that opened up for me, which, you know, I think the the second thing that uh, is related to that, that was so influential for me as a leader is understanding that leadership can be learned. Mm-hmm. You know, the other the other sort of conflation, I guess that's the right word for it, that we're taught is, you know, the idea of a born leader, you know, the people who have physical physical and or intellectual or personality attributes that tend to be correlated with leadership. Um, you and I both know you can lead from any type of personality style. You can learn leadership skills and acumen. And uh, so those two things, learning those two things just unlocked a whole different future for me in leadership. The fact that I could learn to be better, that I could teach people to be leaders, that as an as somebody with the privilege of executive authority, my job was to actually create the conditions for leadership inside the organization. Um, those were monumental observations, and you could spend your whole career trying to perfect those things. And I feel like that's what I'm trying to do now. And it feels so good to, you know, cultivate leadership as somebody who has the privilege of executive administrative authority. Interesting insights on on leadership, and I'm glad you said leadership can be learned because um, me and my producer partner, uh, Dave Gregory, would uh, be out of business if we couldn't teach leadership. So, no, you articulated that uh, beautifully. So I know that physician burnout is a concern of yours. So according to the American Medical Association, 63% of physicians report signs of burnout such as emotional distress or depersonalization. What can you and other healthcare leaders do to combat this idea of burnout? Well, it's it's a great question. I appreciate you calling attention to it. It's something that we're really concerned about because, you know, there's there's a reason that the physician workforce just tops the charts in things like substance abuse, divorce, even suicide. Um, and we want we want our peers and colleagues to be healthy and well so they can serve the population. And um, so there's a lot of different things that we're doing. One of the things that I'm focusing on, and I, I it's honest to say it's theoretical at this point, Jay, mm-hmm. but I have a I have a belief that that in in the health professions we create superb technicians, I mean true experts, people who are trained to identify and intervene very skillfully on a technical problem like a disease state or an anatomical surgical problem. And we um, cultivate and reward the the acumen and behaviors that create excellent technicians and technical uh, problem solvers. And we put that that person into a highly complex interpersonal environment 
in which we ex we expect them to express those technical skills. Mm -hmm. But but they don't, you know, if a surgeon has control over an operative field and understands clearly the organ to be addressed and the pathology to be addressed, that's a categorically different problem than the interpersonal relationships on a surgical team or on a unit, right? An example that I've used before is imagine the difference between successfully performing a coronary artery bypass surgery and successfully addressing um, too high of a post-operative uh, infection rate. And we ask a surgeon to be a technical master of both of those things and be accountable for them. Well, the surgery is about a technical skill set. Understanding why a continuum of healthcare that includes a preoperative assessment, an operating room, a postoperative uh, assessment and, and, and stay, and then a, and then a post-op surgical floor recovery. And all of the people and components in that those complex environments that could contribute to a post-operative infection, it, it's very clear to see that, you know, one is a technical problem and a technical challenge, and the other is a highly adaptive environment and an adaptive challenge. And um, a surgeon can go into a, an operating suite and control him or herself technically uh, um, addressing a surgical problem, but you can't delegate or order an infection rate away. You've got to work within teams, um, create influence, um, be willing to fail on your way to success. So the so the two skill sets are different. And to get back to the heart of your question, I really believe that if we did a better job helping uh, healthcare professionals understand leadership and the different skill set and different expectations involved in being a leader rather than a, an expert technician, um, then I think we might put them in environments where they feel better uh, able to create the influence and the outcomes that they want, whether it's a, you know, a quality problem like, a, like an infection rate that I mentioned, or maybe it's a frustration with how the electronic medical record is working for them. But they can't just walk into the COO's office of the hospital and demand a different EMR. It doesn't work that way. So how do you cultivate influence and and uh, change the direction uh, of an organization, create momentum uh, towards a new vision? Those are all leadership skills. And I feel like uh, physicians and other healthcare professionals might experience the sense of depersonalization or not being valued in their systems if we arm them with that complementary skill set. Um, so that this is a theory that I'm working on right now to try to understand better and um, and to learn if helping medical students learn leadership in parallel to their other skill sets and then to cultivate that that fund of knowledge, just like we would clinical skills mm -hmm. throughout their residency and their early uh, years as a as a clinician, if that might help to mitigate that. But I do think there's something there. Um, about the correlation between leadership and sustainability, wellness, and decreasing burnout in healthcare. Um, and uh, even if the evidence isn't quite there yet, it's uh, it's something I think is worth pursuing. Dr. Pate, let's talk about this idea of healthy collaboration amongst the healthcare community. What, what are your thoughts about this? Um, you know, 
I don't want to oversimplify, Jay, but I don't I don't think anything happens in healthcare without collaboration. Um, you know, it's the cliche is it's a team sport. You know, I, I think about the um the most important successes that I've had in my career. It's so easy to start to populate your brain with, you know, a diagnosis that you made or an effective relationship with the patient that you cultivated. You created health or maybe at the administrative level, a program that was successful didn't exist before. But um, if you sort of back into all of those successes, what you realize is they're all predicated on a relationship. Their relationship to your patient, their relationship to the team that helped you produce that outcome for a patient, your relationship to a faculty member or a constituency in the community that cultivates the conditions for a new program. Um, and so it just has helped me to realize that if you want to be successful in healthcare, you've got to be successful at relationships. And um, I think if uh, I guess two people come together who aren't uh, required by the nature of their do job description to work together, I, I would call that a collaboration. And, no doubt. Uh, yeah. So big or small, I think I think successful collaborations in healthcare is is really the key to all the different successes that we have in in our diverse missions whether it's to treat patients or raise awareness and raise money for resources or it's to produce scholarship or uh, advocacy in the community dr brian pate chairman of ku wichita pediatrics in wichita kansas has been our guest dr pate thanks for your time today and sharing your thoughts about leadership it was truly an honor to have you on the podcast today Jay, thanks. I I enjoyed it. You know, it's easy to get me going about the topics that I that I love, and I appreciate the opportunity to to talk with you today. All right, friends, that's a wrap. We'll put a bow on this episode of What Leaders Want. Today's podcast is sponsored by Canadis Three, the experts in leadership development, coaching, and consulting. Canadis Three develops people into leaders of people. Until we meet again, remember if your actions inspire others to dream more, learn more, do more, and become more, you, my friends, are a leader. Bye now.